Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. And um, I'm going to ask you to do something that's not indicated in the bulletin. Please stand for the reading of the word as we give reverence and honor to God's word. Don't worry, I won't make you stand during the sermon, just during the reading of the word. We're going to pick up in Jeremiah chapter 30, beginning at verse 18. And I'll actually read through the first verse of chapter 31. This is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its own mound and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. Their children also shall be as before and their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all who oppress them. Their nobles shall be from among them and their governor shall come from their midst. Then I will cause him to draw near and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord? You shall be my people and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it and until he has performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will consider it at the same time, says the Lord. I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. You may be seated. There's a popular saying that hindsight is 2020. And as we go into a new academic year and, and some of you boys and girls are going to go back to school or pick up your studies in homeschool, um, it, it brings to mind reflections I have of when I was in grade school. And I made a lot of mistakes in grade school. And so the axiom or the maxim, the saying hindsight is 2020, I can look back at the mistakes, the errors, even the sins I committed and think, man, I shouldn't have done that. But you know what? Hindsight is 2020. I had no idea what the consequences would be at the time. Well, hindsight is 2020 also applies to good things. Let's say, for example, when you're on a trap when you're on a trip and you're traveling, especially if you're the driver and it's the first time you've been somewhere, the journey to the destination is a lot more difficult the first time than subsequent times or a lot more difficult than when you make the return journey. And you kind of know what to expect. You know the lay of the land. You've been through it before. Well, when we read Old Testament prophecy, Particularly this prophecy in Jeremiah, we can say hindsight is 2020 or things are more familiar to us today because we're looking at it in the light of Jesus Christ, who here is promised to us. And that's uh, part of the reason why I chose this passage. I asked Savannah what Pastor Boyd has been preaching through. And when I saw where he is in the life of Christ in the Gospel of Luke, I I thought, you know what, I think I'm going to go to a passage in the Old Testament that tells us of the coming of our great king of Jesus Christ to give you a, a little taste or to 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 present to you the great hope that God's people had in the Old Testament for he whom you are hearing about and reading about each Sunday morning as Boyd goes through the gospel. As Pastor Boyd goes through the gospel. 
The context of Jeremiah is important for our passage. All the way up to this point, Jeremiah has been hammering. I use that word intentionally because he says your word is like a hammer. He's been hammering the people of God for their sin and their gross rebellion. Telling them that they will be brought into captivity, that they will be taken from the land, and they just totally reject him. They blow him off. And they cling rather to false prophets all along the way. And Jeremiah's message is essentially this. A holy God will not be trifled with. Don't mess with the Holy One of Israel. And he's just devastated as again and again this message is rejected, is blown off. And so Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He's the prophet who sees the destruction of Jerusalem. He's a prophet who gets forced later on in Jeremiah to go down to Egypt with a bunch of people who asked him what they should do. And he said, don't go to Egypt. And they said, all right, we're going to go to Egypt. I mean, this poor guy really had the toughest call of, of any man other than Jesus Christ himself who was called to die for our sins. Jeremiah really, and R.C. Sproul said this and, uh, um, in his Dust of Glory series, and it stuck out to me, Jeremiah really did have uh, he drew the short straw, so to speak. He had the hardest call of any prophet in the Old Testament. But the parameters of that call are important. If, uh, if you recall, don't turn there, but in Jeremiah 1.10, we see his, his calling. God says to him when he's calling Jeremiah the prophet, See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down. And this applies to Israel just as much to the other nations. Up to this point, up to Jeremiah 30, he's been focusing on Israel, but he's going to make a turn after Jeremiah 33, and he's going to focus on the other nations toward the end of the book. But in the terms and the parameters of his call in this verse, in Jeremiah 1.10, he also says, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to build and to plant and in Jeremiah 30 to 33, we get a glorious picture of how Jeremiah is fulfilling that part of his call. He is giving hope to the remnant of God's people who will remain faithful. For not only will a holy God not be trifled with, because he will uphold his word in the judgment of his rebellious people and the nations who persecute them, but this holy God will extend mercy and build and plant his people according to his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which, if you are a good student of the word, you might have heard echoes of that. And children in particular, I hope you're familiar with Genesis chapter 12, where God makes all the glorious promises to Abraham, because we'll talk about that as we go through the passage. The mercy, keeping in mind hindsight is twenty twenty. the mercy of God is seen ultimately in Jesus Christ and foreshadowed, predicted, uh, anticipated for us here in Jeremiah chapter 30. Consider just in this chapter at verse 3, uh, Jeremiah says, For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers and they shall possess it. And then again in verse 9 of this same chapter, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Jeremiah has just told them you're going to lose your land, you're going to lose your king. 
And now in chapter 30, he says, and you'll be brought back to the land and David, your king will be put over you. We've broken down the passage here in two parts, verses 18 to 22 and verses 23 to 24. And the reason for that is that 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 word behold, behold, it breaks up the prophecy for us. And so part of um, the preacher's task or the exhorter's task, if you're not ordained in this case, part of our task is to teach the people of God how to read the Bible and to read it more effectively. Not that we're so great at it ourselves, but we are given the privilege of spending more time with it. And so I want to point that out to you. Structurally, this passage is broken up into two parts. And so what the overall uniting message of these two parts of this prophecy together Because they all come under this heading in verse 18. Thus says the Lord, behold, and then behold, the overall message is Christian. He's talking to the covenant people. Christian, Christ is your king who saves you and defends you. We'll look at this under two headings very simply. First, Christ, your king, saves you. Verses 18 to 22. Behold, Christ, your king, saves you. And then verses 23 and 24. Behold, Christ, your king, defends you. Christian, Christ, your king, saves you and defends you. So first, looking at verses 18 to 22, we see two things. We see the Christian's salvation pictured for us in 18 to 20. And then we see the Christian savior pictured for us and described for us in 21 and 22. First, let's look at verse 18 together. Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents. Well, translation issue here. I know that um, you all use different translations, ESV, maybe NIV, New King James, which is what I'm reading from, New American Standard. Well, the old King James and the new King James maintain the, the literal word for word translation sense, which might be a bit foreign to us. This I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents. But your translations might have smoothed that out a bit to mean restore the fortunes. Of the tents of Jacob, I will restore their fortunes. That's really what the meaning is. But I like the picture of bringing back the captivity because that reminds us of what Jeremiah has said to them over and over and over again. You will be taken to a land that is not your own. But now here is the reversal. Here's the beginning of restoration. I will bring you back. I will bring you back. This covenant promise of mercy is really at the heart of this promise of restoration. Look again to verse 18. I will bring you back. I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy or compassion on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its own mound and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. So the origin here of God's promise of restoration, the origin is the mercy and the compassion of God. We're given the gospel at the front end of the passage. It's a reversal of the social and political calamity of being taken out of of bringing those uh, curses from Deuteronomy to bear on the rebellious people and taking them out of the land, bringing them into captivity in Babylon. It's a reversal of that and a picture of restoration founded on the foundation of God's mercy, compassion and love for his people. Consider that. These people deserved nothing of the sort, and yet God lavishes it upon them. Why? Because he says, I will have mercy, mercy on his dwelling places. 
Now, why would he have mercy on the dwelling places? Why would he have mercy on this rebellious and stiff-necked people? Why would he promise them that their city will be rebuilt, even upon the ruins, in the very same place where it was destroyed? Look at verse 19. Then, out of them shall proceed thanksgiving in the voice of those who make merry, or the voices of celebrants. I will multiply them, and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small. The purpose of this restoration is worship. He makes a covenant promise of mercy to establish this covenant relationship of worship with the people of God. We see a partial fulfillment of this in, uh, in the days of, of Nehemiah and Ezra. When they come back from captivity and they rebuild the city and they rebuild the temple, though a little bit less glorious than before, And though there are some people who regret that it's not as nice as Solomon's temple, yet the overriding uh, sense and, and, and response of the people is worship and praise to God. Praise be to God, our Savior, who restores us, who puts us back where we were taken from and establishes for us this relationship where we can dwell with him and be with him again. Is this not what we're doing this morning? When we come into, into his courts, into his temples, when we gather together as the covenant people, this is exactly what we are called to do. We are called to celebrate. You know, I've been to, um, I've been to many churches in my life. Pentecostal, Charismatic, uh, PCUSA, EPC, PCA, ARP, OPC, BPC. I can keep on going. Well, have alphabet soup in here. I've been to tons of churches. And I am always confused when I go into a church and it's like I just went to a Roman Catholic funeral service. We were talking about this last night. I've been to some really miserable Roman Catholic funeral services. And it kind of makes sense because of what they believe about how one is saved and everything. But when I go to a Protestant church service and it is so reverent as to be solemn and downcast, I think you're missing the point. We're reverent because God is holy, but this should also make us filled with joy. Does that mean we do liturgical dance and run around with our heads you know, screaming? No, not at all. But it means that when we gather together, we are to sing out and we are to have this posture of this is, this is what I was made to do. I'm fulfilling my purpose. Worshiping God in the midst of his people. What a great privilege that is to be in the presence of a holy God who sees us and because we're washed in the blood of Christ, says, I see you and accept you. Come near to me. That should make us merry, as it says in the New King James, in the voice of those who make merry. Well, not only does he promise them this relationship, this covenant relationship of worship, but he also gives them the covenant fulfillment of a nation in the second half of 19 into verse 20. I will multiply them and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. Their children also shall be as before, probably referencing the height of the kingdom in the days of David, when the, when the kingdom was united and as numerous as it would be. And their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. And so as we work through 18 through 20, you see 
As I mentioned before, the promises of Abraham in Genesis 12 reiterated and rearticulated for them. What are those promises? He gives them the promises here of a land that they'll be back in the place where where he had promised a nation. Numerous multitudes of people will be established before him a name and blessing to those who bless and cursing to those who curse. I will punish all who oppress them. Speaking of their descendants. So the Christian salvation looks like this. It just looks like the Old Testament church's salvation. Covenant promise of mercy. This is the foundation upon which this is built. The mercy and grace of God. His compassion for you. The covenant relationship of worship. What is man's chief end? I know every little boy and girl here knows this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Exactly that. And then the covenant fulfillment of a nation, which is the common message of the prophets uh, of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, of Micah. Um, They all highlight this feature of salvation. But you can't understand. The salvation of Christian or of of Old Testament Jew, of the old covenant church of God, unless you understand the Savior. And so in verses 21 and 22 now, we see the Christian Savior. Having considered the salvation, we now see the Savior. First, we see his origin. And not that he is uh, he is made, as we just confess, he's begotten, not made. But the origin of the Savior in relationship to the people here in verse 21 Their nobles shall be from among them and their governor shall come from their midst. And then I will cause him to draw near and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord. His origin here is in a covenant promise. Remember, God is making promises here or reminding his people of his promises to them. Their governor shall come from their midst. He shall be from the seed. In Genesis 12, you have that catalog of promises to Abraham I mentioned before, but then a couple chapters later in Genesis 15, God reassures Abraham and says, from your own seed, you will have an heir and a descendant. And in Genesis 15, then the seed is promised for him. And this seed is identified in Galatians 3.16 as none other than Christ Jesus himself. A singular seed, a governor who shall come from their midst, an heir, a descendant of King David, the root and stock of Jesse, as Isaiah says. We must never, ever pitch the prophets against each other, by the way. Their message is is coherent. Isaiah agrees with Jeremiah, who agrees with Ezekiel, who agrees with Micah and Habakkuk and Nahum and Joel. and, And they all agree because they're all looking forward and at the same person. They're all looking forward to Jesus Christ, the same one to whom we look back to and up to in the gospel and in his eternal session at the right hand of God where he intercedes for us. So you have the covenant promise of the seed. Why is it here that that is inserted for us? For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord? And different translations render this differently because it's very difficult in the Hebrew. And um, translators are not always sure why exactly it's inserted there. I think we're seeing some of Jeremiah's 
dismay and God's dismay that the people he's preaching to at this time really aren't interested in approaching God. And so what's going on is it's, it's almost a sarcastic comment. Who is it that would even want to go near God? Why, you know, who would want to do this? Well, the answer is right there in the hope that this governor who shall come from their midst, who will be caused to draw near as a representative of the people into God's presence, he shall approach the living God according to the promise. Well, the covenant promise of seed may be the origin of the Savior here in our passage, but then the purpose is even more glorious than the purpose of worship in God's presence. In verse 22, you shall be my people and I will be your God. This covenant relationship of identification one with the other. Not only will we worship God, but we will be identified with him. We will be bonded to him. We are called Christians. We bear the name and mark of Jesus Christ through faith. We are united to Christ in our effectual calling, the spirit working faith in us, turning our hearts to embrace Jesus Christ, who's freely offered to us in the gospel. And that is the purpose here of this governor who will come forth. His purpose is to identify the people of God with God and vice versa. Consider what Jesus does at the beginning of his uh, of his uh, ministry, of his public ministry. He actually undergoes baptism in the River Jordan. And, and John the Baptist doesn't understand why. And Jesus says, well, it is right that I do this. Why was it right? Because he was identifying with the people of God, not that he was sinful or had to be cleansed. No, he was clean. But because he understood that he was sent out of the midst of the people to identify with the people so that when he draws near God, just as was mentioned earlier in this service, we can say our nature, we are in the presence of God in the heavenlies because Jesus Christ is there with whom we are united by faith or through faith. You have this covenant relationship of identification then that is uh, that is here purposed uh, by the ruler who comes forth from the people. And this covenant fulfillment is, uh, is in our union with Christ, as I mentioned, which is the basis of our experience of redemption. We are through faith brought near to God. And then that brings us here, having understood that Christ saves you, Christian, and seeing your salvation and your Savior and how all that works, then Jeremiah goes and says, behold, again, this is the word of the Lord, behold, through Jeremiah, Christ your king defends you. And he gives a picture of a whirlwind. And so I'm going to break this up just the same way I broke up the last part. We're going to talk about the Christian's defense, and then we're going to talk about the Christian's defender, because you can't understand the defense without the defender, just like you can't understand salvation without the Savior. So the Christian's defense, your defense for those of you who place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. First, the origin of the defense is in the covenant promise of cursing of enemies. Remember, um, at the second half of verse 20, he says, I will punish all who oppress them. That's, I believe, rooted in Genesis 12 and the promise to Abraham that those who curse you, I will curse. And this is reiterated again and again in the history of Israel. 
of Old Testament Israel, of the church. And what does the picture of this cursing and destruction look like? Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it and until he has performed the intents of his heart. It's a picture of utter destruction by wind. Here in LaGrange, Georgia, you're not quite into Alabama, but do you remember seeing those pictures? What was it, last year when the tornadoes tore through uh, northern Alabama and just totally destroyed those, uh, those homes uh, and different buildings? And I mean, it is utter destruction. I know there's at least one family here that moved up here after Hurricane Katrina and then didn't go back down to New Orleans, right? Uh, I heard about that and, and the utter destruction of wind and waves and water. And that's what's pictured for us here. You've seen it yourselves. I know you've seen it on TV. You've seen it on the news. Perhaps even experienced it yourself. And that's the picture of the kind of destruction that God will visit on those who curse his church, who curse his people. The purpose of this is the covenant relationship of persistent defense. This isn't a one time deal. This isn't a one and done kind of thing between now and glory. God will ever and always be your defender. It's a continuing whirlwind in verse 23. That detail is so important. How often have you been opposed at work, been maligned by neighbors or family or even friends, classmates, co-workers for your faith? And you wonder, where is God, my vindicator, my defense? Where's the Holy Spirit? How come I don't have anything to say? I don't know what to say. I don't know how to match these arguments. What in the world's going on? Well, right here, we're told that whether you see him or you feel him or not, he is continually defending you and working out this defense. And you will be vindicated. Perhaps we'll have the delight of seeing those who persecute us. Come to faith in Jesus Christ, as in the case of Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. Perhaps we won't, but God will answer our prayers in other ways. And we can trust these things to him for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But there's also a warning here in this picture of utter destruction and of persistent defense. Perhaps you're here, and, and since I don't know your congregation, I can get away with saying this, where perhaps Boyd can't be as bold. Um, perhaps you're here and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you're apart from him. These verses here should should sound alarm bells in your head. If I'm with the people of God and I'm not with them, well, then what does that make me? It makes you wicked. And what happens to the wicked? The whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it. And until he's performed the intents of his hearts. It is totally appropriate to be filled with fear at that picture. If you are apart from God. It's a picture that Jeremiah intended for comfort for his people. And it's a picture that should cause the enemies of God to shake in, with fear. So remedy that situation even today. Cry out to the Lord, Lord, save me. I wish not to be destroyed. For Jeremiah goes on in other parts of his prophecy. He says, those who, who seek after the Lord will find him. Those who cry out to him will receive an answer. 
It must be in faith. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit, by the way. Just as the whirlwind of God's wrath falls on his, his enemies, it is the breath of the Spirit of God that fills the spiritual lungs, the revived, resuscitated lungs of those whom God has mercy and compassion upon. It is outside of our control. We can't regenerate ourselves. It's not a work of the will. It is completely and totally up to the spirit. And Jeremiah goes on in chapter 31 to give the glorious picture of the new covenant for that. And he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. And then in 31, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. And write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is the promise of God who works on the hearts of men. He will write his law there. So you will love it. You will cherish it. Yes, it's a terrifying law that that drives us to the cross for salvation. Or to despair if we're apart from Christ. But is God's word. And written on our hearts will make us more and more each day to conform unto the likeness of Christ. What a glorious promise. This word, this law of God is everlasting. What does Isaiah say in Isaiah 55? The grass withers, the flower falls or fades, but the word of our God will stand Forever, including the promises of this prophecy. And this eternal word by transition is the Christian's defender. Just as Jesus Christ is the Christian's savior, having considered the Christian's defense, we now consider Christ again as the Christian's defender. And Christ, as our covenant promised redeemer, was sent from the Father. We see here in the whirlwind, if we consider this as a picture of Christ's defense of us, The whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury. This whirlwind comes forth from God the Father. Jesus identifies himself again and again in John's gospel, especially as the sent one, the one who is sent. John also identifies Jesus as the eternal living word. And so we see all of this coming together here as we consider him as our defender. Jesus says, um, if you see me in John chapter 12, he sees He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness, in the darkness of the whirlwind. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. 
Jesus characterizes his own ministry in this way as one who was sent. And this applies just as much in the Gospel of Luke or the Gospels of Matthew or Mark as it does in the Gospel of John. Again, just like we shouldn't pit the prophets against each other, we must never pit the evangelists against each other. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all are in agreement with this picture of Jesus Christ as one sent from the Father. The purpose here of this one sent from the Father, the purpose of our defender in his ministry, the purpose of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, is a covenant relationship of redemption. We have the covenant relationship of worship earlier, of identification with us, of persistent defense, all described for us, but also the relationship of redemption, to redeem us from our sins. This, these are the intents of his heart in verse 24. Why would he want to redeem us? What is the purpose of that? Paul gives a description of it in Romans chapter 6. He says, but now, having been set free from sin, having been redeemed from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was Jesus' purpose was to redeem us from sin and to bond us to God. That we would be slaves of God, but not just slaves, but sons as well. Paul goes on in Romans 8 and says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. These are the intents of his heart as defender, is also to redeem his people. In Ephesians, Paul describes our salvation as being made alive from the dead, of being brought near to God from afar, to be called into worship. When we think of our redemption, when we think of Jesus defending us against sin, our thoughts and our minds should be drawn to the cross. For this place on the hill of Golgotha, the hill of the skull, Jesus Christ um, accomplished redemption for us. The spirit applies it to us now in our own experience, but he accomplished redemption on the cross. It was there. He cried out. It is finished. I have done it. I've done it all. It is done. He gave up his spirit. That's not merely a redemption so that we would be forgiven of sins and accepted as righteous in the sight of God. But it begs the question, why should we be forgiven and accepted as righteous? It was a call to worship, to be brought near, to be made alive in the presence of God. Jesus Christ from the cross, as our redeemer and as our defender against the wages of sin and the designs of the enemy, as our defender and redeemer, Jesus Christ calls us into worship. It's an everlasting and eternal call that goes forth at all times. That's the perspective here. When we, when we read these couple of verses about the whirlwind, on the face of it, it might seem out of place, but taken together with the immediate context and the greater context of, of Scripture, we see that this is, in fact, a call to worship. For this whirlwind, the fierce anger of the Lord, goes forth until he has performed the intents of his heart, which is what? To have a people to worship him, a people made in his image, 
to be drawn near unto him, to be made alive by the vitalizing power of the Holy Spirit. Children, your parents' prayer and my prayer for my own children and for you, generally speaking, is that all the days of your life you would delight in coming not just to church, but coming into the worship of God. For this is what you were made to do. This is where life is found. Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and were cast out of the garden, lest they eat of the tree of life. And God comes in the person of Jesus Christ, hanging on a tree and gives us access to that tree of life. And we enter into that access by entering into worship and responding to that glorious call that he gives us from the cross. All of this understanding, got this little tagline at the end here of chapter 30. In the latter days, you will consider it or you will understand it. What does that mean? Well, first, latter days is referring to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If we think of Joel and his prophecy of, uh, of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which is fulfilled in Pentecost, as confirmed by the Apostle Peter, who himself was inspired by the Holy Spirit. These latter days are those days between Christ's ascension and Christ's return where the Holy Spirit is dwelling here in our midst, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, renewing our wills and enabling us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in those latter days that the text, the word of scripture would be illumined for us, not illuminated as in what they did in medieval manuscripts with the beautiful gold leaf, but illumined that these words would make sense to us. And so do you pray each Sunday morning when you come into worship? Holy Spirit, make the preacher make sense. Give him the words to say, but give me the ears to hear him. And you can even say this verse and not to sound Pentecostal, but you can claim this promise. You can say, God, you said in the latter days you, I will understand this. These are those latter days. We're not waiting for some great tribulation in the future. We're in the latter days right now. Ah. And this head knowledge, this understanding, it, it needs to be more than that. It needs to also be an experiential understanding, a lived out faith, an actual, um, not just a, a knowledge of Christ as Savior and defender of God's people, kind of detached from your own experience, but an actual trusting of Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your defender. And as you consider, I actually like the word consider it because it goes beyond understanding. You're dwelling on it. You're meditating upon it. You're, you're thinking, how does this apply in my own life? Holy Spirit, make that clear to me. Because it's the Holy Spirit that applies these truths to our hearts through the preaching, through the reading of the word, through prayer, through the right administration of sacraments and, and all the, the various ministry that Pastor Boyd and your elders perform uh, to you. It goes beyond theory and into experience. And at the same time, says the Lord, he reiterates his promise. I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. And this is a promise to the church, not to the nation state of Israel far away in, in what was once called Palestine and Philistia and Canaan and Judah and Samaria. No, this is a promise to you. That he will be the God of your family. Of your soul, the king who reigns in your heart. 
Hindsight is 2020, they say, with regrets. And surely, I guarantee you, something will pop into my head this week and I'll think, oh, I should have had that in my sermon on Jeremiah 30. Well, you know what? Hindsight's 2020. So I said what I said, and that's all I said. And when I travel home this afternoon, it, it'll seem to go a little bit more quickly for having made the journey once here. And I, I will recognize different landmarks and probably get hit in Atlanta traffic again, even though it's Sunday afternoon. Who knows why? But um, and in your own life, um, you you will you will come across things in your journey, so to speak, on that pilgrimage to that celestial city in heaven, to that heavenly Zion you'll come across things that hopefully will bring to mind even this passage. Because Jeremiah here, and the Holy Spirit through Jeremiah, has laid out for you salvation. The way of salvation. And as you continue to work through the Gospel of Luke with Pastor Boyd, you will come across things that will bring to mind, ah, yes, this is about Christ my Savior and Defender, as promised in Jeremiah. And having seen the journey, having made this journey even this morning, hopefully... Um, it will be all the more familiar to you as you go through the gospel. I know there are some real prayer warriors here. The Wilsons were telling me that and some uh, Bible scholars, folks who have read the Bible multiple, multiple times, even multiple times per year for many years. And isn't it delightful as you go through the scripture again and again to be reminded of different parts of scripture that maybe you didn't make the connection of before? And again and again, as you become more familiar with it. So may we become more familiar with the scriptures toward that end, that we would be made more like Christ as we internalize his word. And as he, by his spirit, writes it on our hearts. So the prophet Jeremiah laid out the way of salvation in this passage. And he talks of the new, the new covenant, which God promises to make in the next chapter. And the spirit applies to us the salvation in Christ today. He does that. I think in, in closing, I'll read for you uh, what should characterize this covenant relationship of worship. It's in Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing and bringing his sheaves with him. If you are at all like the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, and you consider the state of the church, not your congregation, but the state of the church in our country, around the world, or our culture, and you weep and you wonder, what is the world going to be like for my kids and grandkids? What is going on? Take heart. Lord has made a promise to bring back the captivity, to bring us out of the captivity, to restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob. And the church is even now being built by the Spirit of God, working with His Word into that glorious, spotless bride who at the revelation of her bridegroom will be just as he is. What a glorious promise. Let us pray. Our great God in heaven.